everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here, as I always am, with just the zoo of us. And this week, I have a brand new friend that I'm really excited to introduce y'all to. This is Aaron Fairweather. Say hi, Aaron. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited, first of all, to talk ants with you today because I've been really hyped up about it. Um, but before we talk about ants, would you like to kind of introduce yourself to our friends a little bit? Sure. Uh, so I am a PhD candidate at the University of Guelph. I study ants um, in agricultural systems. So looking at their diversity, um, what they're doing to our like crops and our food and how we impact them through the use of things like pesticides. But I've always been interested in entomology and uh, insects in general. I uh, grew up in a very small town in New Brunswick, Canada, and would spend like days just gathering up caterpillars and rearing them in my living room from as young as two years old. And so I, I quickly got into working with uh, insects at the New Brunswick Museum in high school. And from there, it just kind of blossomed. Like I just kept pursuing it. It happened that there was a gap in knowledge uh, on ants in the province at the time. And so that's how I got into ants. But I've always just had a passion for entomology in general. Oh, man, that's really exciting, like that there just happened to be something waiting for you that was like, ooh, there's something we don't know about ants. Yeah, it was really exciting, actually, because, yeah, it started there in grade nine. And then during that summer, the curator was like, you know, we know nothing. And we're starting this big biodiversity assay of the province, like what is found in the province? We know absolutely nothing about the ants. And it just so happens at the same time. Uh, in Maine, USA, that there was a taxonomy course, so an ant identification class going on. And so they sent me there, I did the course, and then I came back and used all that I learned to identify all the ants in the province. And actually, I'm still working on that project. Like I haven't published all of the data yet, but I uh, recently got out one paper on one of the parks in the province. And we had 32 species that had never been recorded in New Brunswick before. So all exciting stuff. Oh, gosh that's you never like i've heard a lot of people say like you know most of the animals in the world are ants <laughs> like yeah look to your left look to your right if none of them are ants it's you you're the ant so what did that work look like studying like the biodiversity of ants in your area like were you going out and like digging through the dirt looking for ants yeah so it's kind of funny there's a uh big standardized set of methods that you use to kind of capture as much diversity as possible within an area. So we would go out, you lay out this 50 meter transect line of like uh, tape. And along that transect, you lay out pitfall traps, which are these cups that you bury into the ground that have some soapy water in them. And then next to those um, pitfall traps, you lay out bait traps. And these bait traps are tuna and cookies, because that just happens to be what really attracts ants. They really what? like to smell it. You know? yeah, it's, it's super weird. I mean, we're going into the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of a forest, and then just opening a can of tuna and laying tuna on the ground. It, it's just a funny sight. <laughs> That's really funny to me. So you lay out the bait traps, then you take soil samples. So just take a clump of the soil and sift through it, kind of look through it actively, but then you also take it back to the lab and we put them in these bags called mini Winkler traps. And so you have a heat light that is beaming on this bag. And then anything that is in the soil starts to get irritated by the drying conditions. And they funnel down to the bottom of the bag. And that's where they're going to be collected in a vial. And then all the while we're, we're doing active collecting. So we're doing things like you were saying, like digging in the dirt, trying to find things, lifting up rocks, 
opening like clumps of moss, all of this stuff. And you kind of get an eye for finding ants. Like you learn where generally they're going to be found, what kind of habitat they like. I mean, the obvious one that kind of everybody knows about is if you lift up a rock, typically there's an ant colony there. Um, and that just works really great for no matter where you are. And so once we have all of these sampling methods done, we get all of those samples from the various places and we put them together. And then based on that information, we can say, okay, we found probably 99% of what is possible within this environment, as long as you sampled enough. Doing this and collecting all of these samples of ants, let's say within like the area that you're studying about how many different species of ants would you typically expect to find there? I know you said you found like, what, 20 or 30 new ones. How many species would you expect to find just in one small area? Um, so in one specific habitat, like if you're sampling in one habitat, it can range. Um, there are some habitats that ants like more than others. Ants typically like things really hot. Uh, they like things pretty humid. They like kind of uh, almost barren landscapes. So things like fields typically have a lot of species diversity. And you can find upwards of like 50 species, depending on where you're sampling in a single place. It can be pretty dense. If you're talking about if you get a little bit more broad and you get a couple of habitats mixed in there, there are typically some ants that are specialists of specific habitat types to so get some ants that are only found on bogs or swamps versus some ants that are only found in uh, hardwood forests or softwood forests. And so then you can get upwards of like a better sample of what you'd find in that area. And then it just depends on how big you go in scale. Like in Canada, there's estimates that there are like 250 species, but that's probably super underestimated um, because just not a lot of people work on ants. I found that there's like 97 species in New Brunswick when people were saying there was only like, oh, maybe 30. So Definitely an understudied group. Not many people are doing it, like especially in temperate areas. Wow, because I'm I'm thinking about how you know if I were to go out in my backyard, you'd probably give me about ten seconds, and I would find at least one ant. But I had never really thought about there being so much differentiation between the different types of ants. You know, because I think that typically when somebody who is not an entomologist looks at an ant, they're like, "Yeah, that's an ant. That's it. That's all of them. <laughs> they're all just ants." Uh, if you don't know what you're looking for but we live in a very like almost marshy area so i'm wondering how many different types of ants would be in our backyard right now i bet that would be a really fun thing to <laughs> fun thing to figure out yeah and i mean I, you were saying you were from florida and like there is a crazy amount of ant diversity in florida i think the florida list there's around 300 species just alone from florida and there's some pretty big ant labs from florida too so it's pretty well sampled some pretty cool species in bogs and marshes that are specialists in like reeds and stuff like that. You'll only find them in the middle of these reed plants and they'll nest entirely within them. Pretty cool stuff. Definitely. You you mentioned that your work is specifically focusing on like how we're affecting each other, like how, how we humans and ants are bouncing off of each other. Are we seeing like ants responding or adapting to human activity? Yeah, certainly. Um, we're seeing some things like ants becoming more adapt to urban areas. So lawns and stuff like that will have a specific set of species and ants typically like those kinds of conditions. So see quite a bit of diversity that normally in other insects we don't see in urban settings. There are some interesting cases where you'll have ants like um, Tetramorium immigrans, which is a European invasive, but it's been here for around 200 years now. And it's become almost a specialist on sidewalks. 
Like you'll almost exclusively find it in North America under sidewalks, like the paved stones of sidewalks. That is so specific. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's pretty cool because in its native environment, it takes up the role of another species of native ant we have here called Lazius neoniger. Lazius neoniger before Tetramorium immigrants came over was found under sidewalks, but also lawns and more open fields and even on the edge of forests and stuff like that. Um, but as soon as Tetramorium immigrants came over, it was displaced from the sidewalks and is only found on lawns and stuff. But that's where Tetramorium immigrants stayed. Like it doesn't go beyond that. It doesn't extirpate um, or remove uh, Laziest New Niger from any other kinds of habitats or environments. So they've kind of gotten along in that way, which is really cool. I feel like that is a success story of an introduced species, right? Yeah. That, that's not what you usually hear about. Like, I think a lot of times when you hear about an introduced species, it's usually very bad news, but they seem to have uh, managed to find a compromise. Yeah, exactly. And we have other poor examples of that, unfortunately. Like, there are species like the Argentine ant, the South American fire ant, the European fire ant. Those three species are highly aggressive and they will displace native species. So you're seeing with places that have the South American fire ant in the U.S., uh, a displacement of up to like 90% of the native species because they just outcompete every native uh, species of ant in their area, which is really sad to see. So what is the like ultimate effect that that has? Like say you've got ants in an area that are native there that have been there the whole time. A new ant rolls into town. They're not so nice. They get rid of the old ants and now there's still ants there, but they're new ants. What is like, what impact does that have? It can have quite a bit of impacts. And honestly, like we're still figuring out exactly how important a lot of the native species of ants are. One of the great examples, especially from California, is there's two particular species of wood ant. Um, they're a pretty common thing to see. They're usually the red and black or black ants, medium size um, that you'll see running around. The, one of the ones that everybody's like, that's the only ant that exists. That's the one ant. You know, there's one of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and they're responsible for creating soil profiles. So they move so much soil and they cycle the nutrients in a specific way and aerate the soil enough that it allows specific forest types to exist. Um, they're actually called the podzolic ants because it's this podzolic soil type that they create. And it's required for a lot of the Carolinian forests that we see in California. With the South American fire ant, it's been displacing the podzolic ants out of these forests and actually been changing the entire forest ecosystem. Certain understory uh, herbs and woody plants, they're no longer able to survive in these forests. Um, we're seeing like the forest actually shift and almost go through a stage of succession when this European or South American invasive ant has come through. It's too bad to see. And we're just figuring out what other species are doing similar things and are really important that might be dis displaced by uh, these uh, invasive species. That is very interesting to think about because you wouldn't think of something as as teeny tiny as an ant having such a big impact on the ecosystem. But like, that's how ecology works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it comes back to the point that you were saying, like every <laughs> two people around you, if one of them isn't an ant, you're the ant. Um, <laughs> ants actually outweigh human biomass on the planet four to one. So for every one human, there's four humans worth of ants. 
That's terrifying. <laughs> I know. It's crazy to think about because realistically, if you're walking on the street or on the lawn, on your front lawn or something, there is probably entire cities underneath their feet of ants. There's just entire societies, these wars waging, there's these huge inter interactions, numbers of species that you can't even comprehend. Uh, it really is amazing. And when you think about that, that amount of presence of these ants and the amount of soil that they're moving, the amount of like structure that they give to the soil and how much they move, that's how much of an impact they're having just on the environment in general. And if we think about our own impact, we are highly present on the planet and we do crazy terraforming things like make our like concrete cities. We change entire environments to fit our needs. Ants are doing the same things and they're more abundant than us. They're just doing it more like discreetly. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that also has to do with like they've existed within the environment for millions and millions of years. So the environment's built up around them where a lot of our impacts are instantaneous. Like we're very good at making environments to our needs very quickly and the environment can't adapt to us, but they have adapted to the ants. And so we see these global environments that are very structured by the ant communities that you see. Um, and if you disturb those ant communities in any way, that ends up disrupting the entire ecosystem. Well, that is a really good transition into reviewing ants. But for me, I feel like I'm now stumbling upon this uh, like massive, sprawling underground metropolis that I had no idea was beneath my feet the whole time. So this is very exciting for me. But so if this is your first time listening to this particular podcast, what we do is we review animals by rating them out of 10 in three different categories. And the first one is effectiveness. And this is physical adaptations that let the animal do like a really good job of the things it's trying to do. So these are structures that are maybe built into its body or just physical skills that it has that, that let it do what it's trying to do. So what do you give uh, ants, I guess in general, I know that that's like a huge, uh, that's a very, very broad brush to paint with, <laughs> but what do you think you would give them for effectiveness? Oh, I think that's a 10 out of 10 easily for the ants, just because <laughs> they are one of the most successful organisms on the planet. The fact that before we even came around, they had occupied every environment that we had sought to occupy and that they had almost terraformed the planet themselves. They have created these environments that best suit them. And one of the best examples of just how effective ants are at using the environment and that their life strategy is so effective is the fact that ants no longer really evolve to fit the environment. When you think of most organisms on the planet, you think of the fact that they are in this constant struggle of natural selection, that the natural world around them, that the environment influences how they evolve. But with ants, they've kind of reached this critical point where it's like, okay, we can live anywhere. We have taken over the soil ecosystem. We have such huge numbers and like our colonies are such an efficient way to use the environment that nothing's going to really tear us down or get rid of us. The biggest pressure on us to evolve and to change is each other. We have to compete with other ant species in the environment for resources, for 
niches for places to nest, all of this stuff. So ants have started to evolve in a very specific way to compete with one another so that their niche in the environment is never taken over by another ant species. And you see this in really cool species like the turtle ants. The turtle ants are this South American species of ant that have a very unique cast where they have a, a flat round head. And for a long time, scientists were like, why does this ant just have a like a really flat round head? And then we watched their colonies in the canopy of trees. And that one cast of ant will use their head to block the entrance of their nest. <laughs> They'll just use their head to make a door on the opening of the nest. And that is because other species of ants will typically wander around the forest canopy and raid other ant species for those nest resources. But if you have a door ant in the way, they can't get into the colony anymore. That's such unique and specific adaptation just to make sure that no other ants, because there's nothing else really that's threatening them, just the ants don't get into the colony. So this is like not all of the ants of this species have this door face. Just yeah. like one particular group of them has a door face. Yeah. That's so wild. And so that's like incredibly extra. They really went the extra mile for that one. They were like, you there, turn your face into a door and then yeah. close up our colony for us so nobody else can get in. But I mean, it's clearly working. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the crazy thing about they're almost like, Ants are almost the masters of evolution. Like evolution happens on millions and millions of hundreds of millions of years in scale. Certain organisms take forever to get adaptations that will allow them to be highly successful in the environment. Ants, on the other hand, they have this really unique means of selecting their genetics in a way. It's not on any scale that's like, okay, within a generation, they can make this new cast that looks this completely different way um, and they can beat out other ants. It's not like that. It's still over the course of thousands and millions of years, potentially. But when you compare that time scale to other organisms, which is hundreds of million years, it's a, a very smaller distance in scale. In the queens, they're able to select for certain uh, features within their workers to best fit their needs when they are genetically identical. So that's how you get casts, right? You have soldier ants, you have worker ants, you have scouts, you have all kinds of different roles. You have these door ants. Um, they look so morphologically different, like physically different, but they're genetically identical sisters to one another. It's just about turning on certain genes and turning off certain genes. That's mind blowing. And I'm going to get too stressed out if I, <laughs> if I think too deeply <laughs> about it, I'm going to like have a crisis <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> like, it's like all the instructions and all of the code for those functions is already built into their body. It just takes her to decide, okay, you're going to have these switches flipped so that you have a door for a face and you're going to have these switches flipped so that you're big and strong and can bring me food. Yeah. And a good way to kind of compare that to a human body is the cells in a body, right? Each cell in our body has the genetic code to make any other cell in our body, um, generally speaking. But we are able to develop and select for certain tissues to develop based on things like epigenetic factors or ways that you turn on genes and turn off genes. That's what makes a nerve cell a nerve cell, a white blood cell a white blood cell, a red blood cell a red blood cell. And ant colonies have been able to do that on the individual level. They're able to turn off genes and turn on genes and be like, okay, at birth, this is what you're going to do for the body of the colony 
so to speak. I know that a lot of times, especially in like science fiction, humans are often described as like the dominant species on the planet Earth. And I that feels very silly to me now. That feels very like humans were very, very late to that party, like started like building cities and stuff. And ants were like, oh, that's cute. Y'all are just now getting there. You guys are just now figuring out this whole building cities thing. Mm, That's adorable. Yeah. And I mean, it goes beyond just the building cities and stuff. It goes to the nitty gritty of what they, what certain species will do in their colonies. When we were talking earlier before doing the podcast, you were interested in the leaf cutter ants. The best. They're so cool. They are. They are incredible. And one of the things that they do is they garden. They do agriculture. They take the leaves that they clip off of trees and they don't eat the leaves or they don't use the leaves for their nests, particularly. They feed the leaves that they gather to fungi that they cultivate. And then they eat the mushrooms that grow on that fungi. So they have adapted to this environment where foraging for food can be quite difficult, but trees are everywhere. And so they've done what we've done. They've been like, okay, well, there's this one resource, these flowering fungi, the mushrooms that we can use for a food resource, and it's pretty efficient. So we'll just grow it ourselves in our colonies. And it's funny because people often think that, oh, it's like the leafcutter ants that are the ones that do all the gardening. But there's a lot of other ant species that do very similar things. And we're learning about that more and more in recent science. So in the temperate region, you have some ants that will actually grow forests for their own benefit. Like they will take seeds from trees that are in their environment They'll harvest them into their colonies and they'll create an environment that will best support the growth of that seed just so they can get other seeds 10 years down the line. This sounds like we are going to be looking at a similar score for ingenuity, I think. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like another 10 as well. Yeah. And it's like when you look at them in depth, there's just so much going on within like them as an organism, as a family of insects in general. And insects are pretty incredible in terms of they're quick to adapt and they're quick to grow skills anyways. But ants have just kind of mastered this underground world and made the world kind of bend to their own needs in all, so many ways. It's, it's incredible. I feel like the thing that blows my mind the most about ants is like how they're able to pull off these massive colony level behaviors while each individual one themselves is maybe not necessarily built to carry out all of these like decision making processes like individually, but altogether they're able to pull off some incredible stunts. So how between the two ants, right? They they can't hear, right? They're not like verbalizing. They're not saying to each other, hey, go get that leaf and bring it back to feed to our fungus. Like, how are they communicating to each other? Actually, some ants do hear. So there's like, there's a few different methods that ants can use to communicate. One of the, like the one way that they communicate, probably to the largest degree, is pheromones. And pheromones are these chemicals that ants release um, from pores on their body. It's kind of like sweat. And these chemicals are signals that tell the ant, okay, this is what I want to get across, this kind of information I want to get across. Say they find a food item in the environment. They'll mark that food item with a pheromone, and then they'll walk back to the colony. And every step that they take, they like leave a little chemical footprint on the ground. And then 
as they get back to the colony, the other ants smell that and are like, oh, okay, that's an indication that there's food in this path. And so the other ants will walk down that path, find the food, and leave their own fair amount trail um, along that path. And as more and more ants do that, it becomes a more concrete trail, like a, uh, a chemical roadway that's made. And they will keep going to that food source until it's expired. And then as soon as it's expired, the ants will leave another pheromone that says, okay, this is done. That covers up that previous chemical. And they do that chemical means of communication for everything. And this is one of the ways that they think that caste selection is actually determined. So how do you tell how many soldiers to make versus how many workers to make? Based on the chemical density within the colony, the queen can smell that and say, okay, there's probably a proportion of 50% soldier to 50% worker. Maybe I want some more workers right now. We don't need that many soldiers. So I'll start laying more of these uh, worker ants. And they do that in terms of means of um, communicating threats to the colony. So if there's something that's um, aggressive or has tried to kill an ant, an ant will release a alarm pheromone that says, oh, there's an enemy present. Mark that enemy with this pheromone and everybody go out and try and kill or get rid of this thing. Oh, no, they're marked for death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like... A, like a D&D spell or something like where you yeah. can like mark your target. Maybe they like gain advantage on an attack later. I feel like if there was an Entomancer class, like somebody that uses insects for magic, they would use a lot of pheromones. Like it would be a lot of chemical markers. That's like attack them. <gasps> like an alchemist that yeah. would like use chemicals to command their minion army of ants. I know, yeah. You have little potions on a belt or something, and you just chuck on a vial and like spray somebody with a bunch of uh, pheromones, and then all of the insects underneath their feet like t- go to work. Like they like start rising up out of the soil underneath their feet. They're like, mm, "Yes, I've been, I've been summoned." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, that's a really cool idea for a... Sorry, guys. I, maybe I'll have to cut this so that nobody steals my idea for a really cool D&D villain. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Anybody can have this one. It's a special treat. You know, I wanted to ask something that I hear a lot about ants that I'm wondering if it's a myth. It might not be, but I feel like a common thing that people talk about with ants is, like, their physical strength. Yeah like in relation to the size of their body, is that exaggerated or are they really like, if you scaled them up, they would be able to lift like, I don't know, a car or something? Yep. Ants, um, insects in general actually have a pretty unique muscular system because when you think about insects and arthropods in general, they're exoskeletal, which means that they have a skeleton on their outside of their body. It's very hard. And They don't have a means of creating a structure inside of their body. So they're not like us where we can attach our muscles to our interior bones and then add more muscle on top of that to lift heavier things. In an ant's case, um, you have this exterior skeleton. And if you add more muscle underneath that, you only have so much space. So there's a finite amount of muscle you can add. And so insects in general, they don't add more muscle to get stronger they use a very unique chemical balance within their muscle fibers that allows them to exceed or reach the maximum amount of weight that they could possibly lift for their body size just in general. They have this really unique system where we um, employ more muscles. So we only need a signal that says contract. When you decontract, it's just stopping that signal. But when you contract, it's pull more. 
within insects, it's pull more, but then other muscles in your body, you're telling, okay, push at the same time. And when you do that in a specific way, it allows you to lift way more than somebody that's just doing the pull is able to do. It sounds a little bit, it's hard to visualize, but that's kind of the way it works is they do a pull and a push at the same time, whereas we just do a pull. On top of that, they've been able to maximize the weight that they can pull by attaching specific fibers to specific places on their exoskeleton. And because they have such a strong exoskeleton, that chitin is such an efficient means of protection, they can really put an incredible amount of strain on uh, that exoskeleton. Whereas with us, if we put too much strain on our bones, they'll break. Like there is a lot of space in between our bones. There's a lot of hollow places and that makes them a little bit more brittle than most other materials in the biological world. Whereas with insects, their chitin is so strong that they can put a huge amount of strain. So they can use the maximum amount of push-pull force on their exoskeleton and not be worried about it breaking. And that allows ants to carry five to 10 times their body weight um, because they just don't have to worry about breaking themselves and doing that. Does that then apply that like if you were to take an ant and make it like the size of a human, they would then be able to carry around like cars and stuff? If it was possible to scale them up in size, yeah, they would be able to do like something like that, like lift a car, something five to 10 times their body weight. They could still do it at the scale of our size. The problem with that, of course, is by cubic law in physics, you can't scale an organism that is that size and that relies on things like their spiracles or their body size to volume ratio to breathe. Um, you couldn't do that, but yeah. Okay. So, so like the strength is not the concern here. <laughs> they would, yeah. You'd get them to that size and then, Oh, well they can't lift anything now cause they're dead. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I teach um, a couple of like insect physiology courses and stuff at the university. And one of them is about um, how pesticides kill insects, but not kill humans. And when you look at insects in terms of their physiology in general and all of the ways that they are so different from humans, it's really amazing some of the physiological systems that they've made. And like we could honestly go on a podcast about all the cool things that are different between humans and insects. And But we don't probably have time for that today. We're just talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> I'm willing to like make the call that they have kind of the game cornered. I think that yeah. maybe humans were lagging behind the ants a little bit. They, <laughs> they're just doing their thing underground. And they're like, did you hear? They just got agriculture. <laughs> So, you know, we talked about how there are so many different like types of ants that are communicating within their colony, but then they're competing with each other. Are ants of different species able to communicate with each other at all, other than just fighting? Is there any sort of interspecies communication or interactions between different species of ants? So this is an interesting question because yes and no. There are some species that have adapted to be able to smell or hear other ants, and they abuse that power. <laughs> I mean, at least to our knowledge right now, uh, there are no examples where ants between species will like efficiently communicate back and forth. Like one is able to talk to the other and the other is able to talk to the one. There are examples, like I say, where there's one species able to hear the other, but not speak back or them to be able to recognize the other. 
as a threat or anything like that. Um, so you don't necessarily between species get communications in terms of warfare or something like that. You do that. You do get that within species. So you'll have people or people. Uh, you have ants that are able to communicate um, back and forth between one another within the same species and to avoid conflict or to incite conflict, but not between. Huh. Wow. <laughs> They're not necessarily using all of their powers for good. No. So on that line, like the species that I mentioned that are able to hear other species, they're what we call social parasites. So when you think about a parasite, it's an organism that relies on another organism for survival. And with ants, they've come to a point where they're no longer just relying on other species um, physiologically, like they're not just um, feeding on their food or they're not eating them in particular. They're relying on their social structure in order to survive. Um, so you'll have one species that is a host and one species that is um, a parasite, which will, there's four main means of social parasitism in ants. One of them is just occupying their nest. So you'll have one queen that invades a host species and she'll mimic the smell of the host colony and will get fed by the host colony. She'll get food from them. She'll get cleaned by them. They'll think that she's just another queen. Uh, meanwhile, she's a different species and is actually laying her own eggs and like just using that space that the host species has created and they're relying on. But now she's taking advantage of that. I did not expect corporate espionage to like factor in <laughs> to a discussion about ants. I did not think that they were pulling off mind games at the like societal level. That is incredible yeah it's and it like it's so cool because then you get uh, different stages of this right so you'll have the one that's just occupying the colony then you'll have another species of parasite a social parasite that will kill off the host queen she'll, she'll come in perform a coup d'etat start to like lay her own eggs and the workers of the host colony don't realize that the host queen is dead and that it's another species that's taken over because they can't smell any different they can't tell that she's a different species, an actual like spy. And they'll start to feed that queen and slowly the workers of the host colony will die. And then in the entire colony is replaced at some point. Then you get individuals that are dualotic. This is one of those things where it's kind of breaching into a creepy territory, but they are also known as slave making ants where they will raid a host colony and then they will kill off the host queen and enslave the workers. But then on top of that, they'll use that central location to send workers and go out and raid other host colonies, kill the queen and just kidnap the babies and the workers and bring them back to their like new home base and continually replenish that host uh, worker base. And the cool thing about these dulotic or slave making ants is that they no longer can perform their own care. So they no longer can make a colony themselves. They can't even feed themselves. They have to rely on the host colony and the host workers to do all of that stuff. If they don't have a host, then they'll just die. Huh. That seems like a glaring weakness. <laughs> no. <laughs> this brings us back to our Entomancer. I think you can definitely tie that in to like yeah. making a whole campaign where like there's this alchemist who's got an army of slave ants, but if you can just take away his 
host, then you kill him. I think there's yeah. something you can do there. We can workshop that creatively. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Or like you apply a chemical to yourself and just based on the smell, everybody thinks you're another person. Uh, it'd be like a potion that makes you like invisible to them, yeah. but not to anyone else. Oh, there's so many directions you could go with that. Now I'm getting excited. <laughs> I want to write a campaign now. Um, I was going to ask about something, that, something else that I have seen that I wanted to ask if it was a myth or not. You were talking about how like the ants that are being parasitized on don't know any better because they're just going off of the pheromones and nothing else. I, I want to say that I read either like an article or saw a video or something of an ant that somehow had the, the pheromone on it of a dead ant, like had something chemically on it that indicated that it was dead. So not only did the other ants then carry it out of the colony to get rid of it, but the ant also thought it was dead itself because like yeah. smelled it on itself and was like, I must be dead. It's, this sucks for me. <laughs> like, is like, what is the purpose of that? It seems like they care about whether the other ants are dead or not, but only in the sense of like removing the body. And it seems so like hardwired into them that they're even like, it supersedes their own self-preservation. Right. It, it like takes precedence over their own idea of like, no, wait, I'm actually alive. This is wrong. But they're like, no, it's just the, the pheromones say it must be true. Yeah. So that's hygiene, right? Like, and this is another example where ants figured it out first. They realized that if you have dead things in your colony, for any length of time, you start getting disease that builds up, you start getting mold that builds up, things that could potentially impact the living ones. So if an ant dies, they release a pheromone that is this like dead pheromone. And every other ant that smells it, they come and they pick it up and they put it into an ant graveyard. And so ants actually do have graveyards as well. They have this pile of bodies it varies how far away from the colony it is, but it's a pile that they're like, this is where all the dead bodies go. And they'll put it out there and then they'll like clean themselves up afterwards. They'll make sure that there's no lingering amount of that pheromone on them, or they will make sure that there's no other spores or anything that could have been on that worker that killed it um, on themselves. Sometimes they'll even go so far as if the reason why that if a living worker gets this deceased pheromone on it, they are marked as you've interacted with the dead thing. You can't come back now because if you've interacted with that dead thing and there was a disease on it that killed that dead thing, that means you could have that dead thing. So you're like potentially dead now too. And so you have to stay away from the colony. And that's, so the ants self quarantine in a way. They at some point be like, yeah, I might have this coronavirus. I shouldn't go back to the colony and bring it back. And then the coronavirus is eliminated. There's no chance of it coming back to the other workers. <sighs> I just hope you hear the uh, just exasperation in my voice as I'm like, ants have figured this out, guys. Yeah. Ants have I mean, this it's... down locked. Like, I'm in Florida right now, so you can probably hear a lot of frustration in my voice. Oh, yes, I can imagine. I can imagine with everything going on. But then, like, the ability to recognize, like, oh, I need to decide to stay away from the colony, and I need to clean myself up, and I need to take care of myself, shows it, because I think my assumption had been that all of their intelligence is at the colony level, and each individual mm -hmm. ant was, like, had didn't really have a lot going on. But I think that shows, like, they really do have an individual level of personality 
Yeah, like good decision making and and like I guess cognitive process. I guess they're. I mean, they're so little. Do they have like a like a brain brain or just like a neural system or like what what's controlling their decision making at that level? I don't. I don't. I, don't, I know so little about. <laughs> I know so little about like bug anatomy. I'm like, do they have like a brain like the way we think of it? And that's why I love to share this stuff is because nobody really, most people in the public don't know these things and they're really like some incredible bits of knowledge. So with insects, they don't necessarily, they have a larger ganglia, it's called, in their head, which could be called a brain, but it's not really a brain because it doesn't have all of the separate cores and processing units that we have in our brain. It's not a central unit. Um Within insects, they have this big ganglia in their head, but then they have a bunch of other ganglia, these clusters of nerves, all across their spinal column. So down the central line of their body, they'll have little clumps all the way down, and they control different things. Like the one in the middle, in the thorax, controls their muscles. So it's it's not that the signal would ever go back to the central brain to say, okay, move your arm this way that signal only goes to the muscle ganglia and then it comes back. So it's actually a more efficient system because it's closer to the spot where the action is happening. And so it can happen a lot faster. And then you have other ganglia next to like the digestive system that can process, okay, there's a threat in our digestive system. There's some illness, get rid of it quicker. And so it's a lot more efficient at getting rid of some stomach diseases and stuff like that. In the brain, it's a lot of that cognitive processing. So um, that means of saying decision-making and like, okay, I take in this chemical um, or this visual cue, I need to go this way. And that's why there are some more sensory units within that central ganglia that are used to make decisions. Um, that's why it's a little bit bigger. But it's not really a brain per se. With insects, they do, at least we're finding um, more and more in modern science that they do have a more individual personality. For a long time, like you were saying, most people thought, okay, this colony is the unit of replication. It's the almost individual. Individual ants themselves, the workers, they don't necessarily matter too much. Like they don't have any sense of self-preservation or thought. But it actually turns out that there is a little bit of variation and you want that because say you have a line of ants and they're all going to the same food item. They're following that same pheromone trail. All of a sudden, you get one ant along that pheromone trail that says, no, I'm not going to go to that food item. I'm going to try and find something new. And they wander off. Chances are they're probably going to die. If you know that that path is safe, like they're not likely to survive. But there's a chance that they find a new food item. And they're like, okay, I did something really great for the colony. And they are able to survive. They come back. And then they have another pheromone trail going. That individual decision-making of like, okay, I'm going to leave all of my sisters and my colony and do something new, um, that's supported within the colony and like the genetic information of ants. And so you do have individual almost quote-unquote personalities come up because it it's beneficial to some degree. And it's kind of like that's the divergence in a way between humans and ants is like humans are very much on the individual side of things. They're like, okay... I'm going to exclusively do something that's benefiting like me. And of course you have ideas of how it's going to help others and empathy and all that. 
but for a large part, you're thinking a lot more about like what happens to me, whereas ants are a lot more on the colony side of things. What happens to everybody else? And then a little bit like, mm, I'm going to push myself and go out this way. Like nobody's ever done that before. Right. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think that gives me a deeper appreciation for the level of actual like thought that ants are going through. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun to like go out into the yard, maybe dig around, see if I can find some ants. I know that <laughs> a lot of times I find ants by accident, by accidentally standing in their colony and not realizing it until they're all over my feet, but maybe going out and, and observing some ants and seeing if I can find some cool behavior. I feel like now I would have a deeper appreciation for what it is that they're up to down there. Yeah. And you can actually find in your backyard, there's some common species of like slave making ants and stuff like that. Um, there was one, when I was growing up, um, there's this really common black ant where I grew up and this red and black ant, and they look very similar, but they were dulotic and a host species. And you could see on the lawn, like the trails that the um, dulotic slave making species would make to all the other colonies of this little black ant to try and like capture some of the individuals and bring them back. Like you can see this actively happening in your backyard which people think is kind of crazy because it, it seems like something you'd only see in the middle of a forest somewhere and on a very rare occasion but it's a pretty common behavior oh my gosh i ha i'm very excited i feel like i could talk about this all day <laughs> like i feel like yeah. i could keep peppering you with with random ant questions all day long we've got tens across the board so far right like ants are batting a thousand right now they're yeah. they're doing great what would you give them for aesthetics out of 10 i know there's so many different types of ants i feel like i have a good idea of generally what an ant looks like but i know that there are like some that are a little bit aesthetically different what would you give ants like in general for aesthetics how do you think they look oh hmm <laughs> in terms of insects i would maybe give them a 10 i think there's some pretty cool uh physiological features and there's some pretty gorgeous ants if i'm scaling it in terms of everything i'm biased because i'm a mammal so i would say eight out of ten because they're not the cutest things they don't have any stage that's like oh i would protect that <laughs> the the um, face is a little odd yeah. <laughs> they they have the sh the chompy bits in the front that does kind of give you pause for a second yeah exactly um but there are some really gorgeous ants. Like there is one species from um, Australia, I believe it is, that's like bright, bright blue. It's like a gem. It's so cool. There are some ants. And I mean, I think observing the variation in the size of different ants is really cool. If you look at like leafcutter ants and seeing the little workers that kind of look standard ant size, but then the big soldiers that have just this like massive block of a head you wonder how the body can hold this head and they don't have any eyes they only function off of the information that they're getting from the workers and that they are genetically identical to one another that the one sister is like the same as the other and they're working in such harmony with one another and that is represented in terms of how they look i think that's really cool oh yeah i, I want to say that i've seen some ants that were like metallic looking yeah i don't know if that's something that i made up but, <laughs> but i feel like i've seen some metallic ants yeah um some of the species in the sahara are pretty metallic because they have to reflect a lot of the sun so they don't like overheat themselves really cool stuff and like when you look at them underneath the microscope you see so much more fine detail like 
there are some species that are very smooth that don't have any hairs on them and are almost look very clean. And then there are others that are just covered in hairs or they're covered in spikes. Um, there are species that are very modeled. They have a very like rigid, almost like mountainous chitin, their exoskeleton, whereas others are just completely flat. And that variation is really cool too. Oh yeah, lots of little details that you wouldn't see at the uh, human eye level that when you, you get a deeper appreciation for them when you get down to their sort of level. I guess that's what they're seeing when they look at each other, right? Like yeah. probably to an ant, other ants are quite beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you go on, there's a great website called Ant Web um, and it's like a host website where a lot of people just post their specimen photos, a way to collaborate with other ant researchers to talk about where things are found and what they look like. But they have a lot of really great high detailed photos of like specimens from museums and from universities. And you can see a lot of that variation, which is great. Perfect. Well, Aaron, as we start to get wrapped up for today, first of all, thank you <laughs> for sharing all of this with me. No problem. I am so excited to know more about ants than I did an hour ago. Uh, so as we get wrapped up, I would like to kind of give you a minute to just let everybody know like where they can find you, what you're involved with, like what kind of projects you're working on right now. Um, I know that I, like, I found you through Twitter and, and largely through like the science communication that you do on, on Twitter. Twitter. And so like, just let people know what you're working on right now and where they can find you. Sure. Um, so I'm kind of <laughs> widely spaced on the internet right now. Uh, most of my science communication uh, accounts are under EntoBird. So E-N-T-O-B-I-R-D. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitch, uh, all kinds of different places. I'm also under Insect Aaron, which is more of my like professional university account. Um, and that's on Twitter. I also help host another kind of biology podcast with another uh, science communicator, Dr. Wildlife. That's at Phyla and Fandom. You can find it on Spotify, on anywhere you get your podcasts, and on Twitter under the same name of Phyla and Fandom. But yeah. I really delight in y'all's content. Uh, both you and Dr. Wildlife both really uh, always adds just a little ray of sunshine to my Twitter feed, which sometimes is like exactly what you need. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. If you are interested in learning more about like ants or insects in general, or just like biology and how to get involved in like science, you can feel free to drop me a DM anytime. I love talking about this stuff. I love doing science communication. So if anybody wants me to talk on their podcast or like just talk to them for a little bit on Discord about insects, uh, I'm always happy to do that. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of your time and knowledge today. I liked ants before and I was excited about them, but I feel like now it's a solid love. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> Let's get more people loving ants. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Aaron. We'll talk to you later. See you later. 